Welcome back. I'm Peter Wood, and I'm the author of Mud Between Your Toes, a Rhodesian farm, which is a memoir about my life growing up in Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia, in the 1960s and 70s. This is a podcast about family, independence, loss, and above all, identity. The Lunch Do, Part 1 One of the things that I hope have rubbed off on me is the enjoyment I get from entertaining, in particular the Lunch Do. My lunches are quite humble when compared with the affairs we had on the farm back in the day. Anyway, this episode is called The Lunch Do. It's quite a long and complex episode, so in order for your enjoyment, I'm going to split it into two sections, one this week and one next week. Farm life anywhere in the world is governed by strict routine. The rainy season, the dry season, the fortnightly dipping of cattle, the weekly traipse to the club on Thursdays, and most importantly, the afternoon kip. Another routine that never seemed to change was that of lunch. Always promptly at 12.30, Monday to Sunday. Occasionally, God forbid, this hallowed routine might be broken by the uninvited arrival of the fertiliser salesman turning up just before the bell, much to the annoyance of my mum and dad. One particular salesman had an irritating habit of timing it so perfectly that you had little choice but to invite him onto the veranda for a drink and then some lunch often throwing the kitchen into disarray and leaving my father in a bad mood for the rest of the day. Sometimes Jehovah Witnesses might be sent packing with a flea in their ear. My father would watch silently like a viper as the pair from the watchtower would piously stroll up the lawn towards him an armful of pamphlets clutched to their chests. Having defended themselves against the dogs, they now had my father to contend with. Well, you're wasting your time here so you can get back in your car and bugger off, Woody would say, looking around as if fire and brimstone were erupting beneath his feet. And another thing, I know I'm going to hell, and I'm bloody well looking forward to it. He would stride after them, shaking his fist and glaring at them in his best Charlton Heston down from the mount look. They were never to know that it wasn't religion, but the interruption of his lunch routine and his much-loved pre-prandial G&T that angered him the most. 
while my dad poured himself another well-earned gilbies and relaxed back in the shade of the ancient bougainvillea, Mum, on the other hand, never stopped. My mother has the most extraordinary energy I've ever known. I would watch her rush to the bottom of the garden to give instructions to the garden boy, then back up to the house to answer the phone, then back across the garden again to prune a shrub or deadhead a flower, then back into the sitting room to pull out some invoice or bill from the dried buffalo scrotum my father used to keep all the all the bumpin' and always but always stopping along the way to bend down, pull out a weed, on and on, never stopping, weeding, deadheading, weeding, deadheading. One of my strongest and most enduring memories was sitting next to Woody in the shade of the veranda, watching Mum in her striped capri pants dashing around or bending over, pulling up weeds from the garden. Christ, that woman just never stops, Woody would muse. How she still has such a fat ass is beyond me. He would shake his head and stir in another gin. Yet she, as he rather disparagingly called her, always had time to sit down and talk to me about the history of art, music, fashion and theatre. She was and is my inspiration. where John taught me the importance of punctuality, truth and honesty, how if you look after the pennies, the pounds will look after themselves, something I'm woefully inadequate at. Mum taught me every colour of the rainbow and nurtured my creative side. That rainbow remained with me all my life. She played us old, scratchy recordings of Laurence Olivier in Romeo and Juliet and Gielgud in Julius Caesar. Oh, pardon me, thou bleeding piece of earth, that I am meek and gentle with these butchers. How art the ruins of the noblest man that ever lived in the tide of times? Woe to the hand that shed this costly blood over thy wounds now do I prophesy, which like dumb mouths do ope their ruby lips to beg the voice and utterance of my tongue. A curse shall light upon the limbs of men. Domestic fury and fierce civil strife shall cumber all the parts of Italy. Blood and destruction shall be so in use and dreadful objects so familiar that mothers shall but smile when they behold their infants quartered with the hands of war. All pity choked with custom of fell deeds and Caesar's spirit, ranging for revenge, with eighty by his side, come hot from hell, shall in these confines, with a monarch's voice, cry havoc, and let slip the dogs of war, that this foul deed shall smell above the earth with carrion men groaning for burial. Wow just as powerful as when it was first recorded in 1953. Mum used to pull out books on the great Renaissance painters, explaining the soft light employed by the Dutch masters, the ghastly horrors of Hieronymus Bosch, to the fascinating and seedy life 
of Toulouse-Lautrec and the Moulin Rouge, the madness of Van Gogh, the fleshy curves of Rubens' women, and, of course, da Vinci's genius. And above all, she taught me how to connect with the world, how to embrace life, how to be a human being, how to love. I have fond memories of those school holidays. On the one hand, spent learning to paint and draw from my mother, and on the other hand, learning about the bush and about Africa from my father. At 12.30, on the dot, Condo would ring the bell for lunch. Jesus, Woody would mumble. He's always on bloody time. I still have half a drink to finish. Of course, Woody would be the first to complain should Condor be late. For most of my life on Masitwi, the kitchen was ruled over by these two extraordinary men called Fred and Condor. Fred was older, the cook. His wife was nanny to all three of us kids. We absolutely adored them. Fred was sent out by Granny Wood to look after my dad when he was a bachelor, living in a grass hut at the bottom of the hill. Unsurprisingly, Fred and Nanny knew everything there was to know about us. All my childhood, Fred was always there. He was part of the fabric of the family. Servants often stayed with one family for life. We had Fred. The Moorcrofts had Manuel. My gran had Gresham. The Francis family had Jennifer, the Harringtons had Macarena. This was how it was. The same cookboys and maids all our lives. Kondo was a huge blue-black man from Malawi, or Nyasaland as he liked to call it, with sinewy muscles stretching down his workman's arms and across his chest. His biceps were massive and hard as steel. When Conda tightened the top on the tomato sauce, no one could ever open it again. It took inverting the bottle in hot water to expand the top, tying a rag around it and twisting with all your might. Rarely did we succeed. For God's sake, Conda, my mother would groan, can't you just close a bottle normally? Despite his strength, Conda was always terribly gentle towards us kids. In all my years, I never heard him raise his voice. This beautiful trait often drove my father bonkers, and it wasn't unheard of for John to hurl an ashtray at the retreating, statuesque figure of Conda in frustration. I know what you must be thinking, and with good reason. Fred and Conda loved us kids, of that I'm certain, and they often felt compelled to protect us against my father's short temper. Once even grabbing my siblings and me, tucking us under their arms and dashing down to the bottom of the garden and to safety. Both servants had been sacked a few times. It was chaotic. Life without Fred or Conda soon became untenable. The simplest things in the world became a nightmare. Tomato sauce bottles aside, it was often the mundane tasks that finally defeated us. 
I've often watched my mum open packets of cereal or biscuits like a wild animal, ripping the packaging apart, then pouring down the innards. Surely this comes from a lifetime of having a, a cook to do all the opening for her, or a houseboy who loved tightening bottles with the strength of Samson. It fascinated me to watch a trivial task become an epic display of tearing, pulling and gnashing of teeth. The outcome would inevitably end in tears, with post-toasties flying across the room in every direction, followed by a rather curt, Oh shit, where the hell is Condor when you need him? Within days, either Condor or Fred was quietly and without fanfare reinstalled to his rightful place. At most, this might have raised my father's eyebrows as he buttered his toast. Life in the Wood household went back to normal. In sharp contrast to the homegrown lunch, but no less regimented, is the lunch due. People would drive for miles over dusty, corrugated roads on a Sunday, arriving like clockwork at 11.30am. Lunch parties would go on until late at night and cost a small fortune. John always set up the bar under the jacaranda tree, barking orders at the staff like a sergeant major while mum did the flowers and the food, all laid out on long tables on the veranda. Flatware, cutlery and crates of glasses were hired from Rooney's. Fred would be prepping, marinating, stewing and stirring for days in advance. These lunches were occasions that also allowed the dozen or so nannies from the different farms to meet up and catch up on gossip. Laying out colourful blankets under the shade trees away from the main party and out of earshot of the guests, they would sit and crochet doilies, hats and tablecloths, turning a ball of dull string into a work of art. Stretching their legs out in front of them, they would drink sweet tanganda tea from chipped enamel mugs and chat in loud voices, their small charges running around and rolling in the dirt with abandon. These epic lunches were a who's who of landowners in Mbukwe's. If you did it, you did it properly, and if you did it, you did it big. Many farmers in the area had frightfully glamorous lunches that required retraining staff to manage and understand the quirky ways of their Murungu bosses, often with questionable results. John Strong, a local pig farmer, had to teach his cookboy to spit-roast a suckling pig. Since John's knowledge of Shona was limited, and the cook's knowledge of English even more so, he had to go into the kitchen and act out how to stuff the animal. Never having been great at charades, John grabbed a bunch of dates in one hand and an apple in the other and attempted his best to explain. Now, Phineas, watch what I'm doing carefully, he commanded in his plummiest accent. First, you put the apple in its mouth, he dramatically mimed, illustrating the task 
by pointing to the apple and directing it to his mouth. Then you stuff the dates up the arse, he continued, again acting it out and patting his backside, just in case the cook wasn't sure. And so the scene was set, the stage lit, the guests having arrived in all their finery, the cut glass decanters twinkling off their jewelled earrings, and the fine South African Rudeberg going down a treat. At the given hour and the donging of the gong, the guests took their seats in what was one of the finest dining rooms in the district. And then it happened, the moment they were all waiting for. The huge double doors swung open and in came a rather startled, if not bemused, Phineas with an apple in his mouth. As the strong family matriarch Joyce pointed out in her best West End pronunciation, I didn't dare ask where he put the dates. Another memorable event was the wedding of the gorgeous Leslie Chance to Mark Cutter, held in the garden of Leslie's parents, Martin and Betty. It was on their stunning farm Neroe which overlooked the purple and mauve hills of the Great Dyke. Leslie had broken away from tradition by asking a young, hip priest to conduct the garden ceremony, rather than Father Basil French, who was adored in the district, but did tend to be somewhat traditional when it came to ceremony. Clearly, there was a certain amount of rivalry between Father French and the young usurper. My diary on the 23rd of September 1978 states simply, The priest was young and Father French didn't approve because the young one said things like, Well, Mark, now you've got her, instead of, I now pronounce you man and wife. Father French had the cheek to say, Leslie, you do realise that you haven't been married in the eyes of God. <laughs> Leslie's wedding attracted the creme de la creme of the farming communities, from the Victory Block to Ambuquis, Centenary and Bindura, and beyond. Scattered across the lawn, chatting and gossiping and catching up with old friends was a colourful fascination of hats that would have made Ascot proud. The constant jangle of bangles as glasses of pims were raised to lacquered lips. A posse of loud dames would be followed by an overwhelming pong of too much scent. It was a stifling hot day and my mum couldn't help noticing that our neighbour, Jean Harrington, was wearing a jacket. What on earth are you wearing a blazer for, Jean? Aren't you hot? Jean was wonderfully funny and never really fazed by anything. Tall and willowy, she was a natural clothes horse. But because of that, or despite that, she didn't particularly bother as much as her fellow farmers' wives about fashion. She wore her clothes well, but without ceremony. Well, Libby, she explained with a laugh, just look what Macarena has done. She removed her jacket and revealed a large hole, the size and shape of an iron, right in the centre of her back. 
It was just such a jolly expensive dress. It seemed such a shame not to wear it. This wasn't surprising coming from a lady who ordered her daughter Joanna to drive all the way back across Salisbury to return a newspaper to the vendor, all because Jean had already bought one earlier. At sixpence a paper, I suspect the petrol was slightly more pricey than the Rhodesia Herald. All this dressing up for lunch occasionally had its disadvantages. When I was three years old, once again at a lunch too at Martin and Betty's, I decided to go for a swim. All the grown-ups were on the veranda enjoying their drinks and the breathtaking views across the dike. I was paddling around on the shallow end of the pool about 50 yards away. Inadvertently, I got to the slope descending into the deep end and started to slide down. Deeper and deeper, inch by inch, until just my nose was below the water. Incredibly, my mum sat at the table watching the scene with morbid fascination, thinking, God, I wonder if he'll make it. And I have false eyelashes on. Bugger! Betty Chance, a former Springbok champion athlete and the only person I know who used to train surf on top of the carriages in her youth, finally leapt from the table, shattering trays of drinks, upturning tables and vaulting the beds of petunias, sprinting across the lawn, dived into the pool and saved me. A couple of weeks later, I saw Betty in the village, and I went up to her and said, Betty, I can swim now. She looked at me over her glasses and said, Well, I should bloody well think so with a mother like that. One learned to swim or sink at an early age, and a few weeks later I was having lessons with Mrs. Gimble at the Settlers Inn Pool in Rapangora. Standing in the shallow end, holding me tightly, her ample bosom acting as ballast, she would take me through the tedious motions of breaststroke and crawl. Now, dear, think that you're a frog, she would command. Don't worry, I'm holding you, so don't be scared. Both my mum and I had neglected to tell poor Mrs Gimble that I could now swim. And I doubt if she ever did fully recover when, later, at the bidding of my mother, I suddenly sprinted across the lawn and dived straight into the deep end. That was the end of Mrs. Gimble's swimming lessons. More often than not, these lunches were always followed by a long and winding, drunken journey home through lone countryside over rocky roads. My father had an alarming habit of suddenly breaking the car and staggering out into the moonlight to have a piss in what we imagined to be the most likely ambush spot on the entire journey. I have no doubt he did it deliberately. Look at those stars, he would growl, flailing his arms above his head, his pee frothing in the dust at his feet. For God's sake, John, get in the bloody car, my mother would bleat as she glanced over at us kids cowering in the back seat. What's wrong with you all? You're just a bunch of bloody weeds. Sissies, where in the world would you see such a magnificent sky? This, 
he gestured, waving at the expanse of the Milky Way, is what we are fighting for. Oh God, Duncan would groan, here we go again. After what seemed like an age, cupping his hands around the flame, he would light a fag, lurch back into the car and take off. The lonely beams of the headlights picking out the hundreds of iridescent moths and insects along the road. The occasional nightjar soaking up any remaining warmth from the sandy track, suddenly startled into life by the engine and blinded by the light, would flap its wings in panic before smashing into the grill. Splat! My dad was often the last to leave these lunch dues, which for us kids meant getting home became an absolute ordeal. It was made all the more difficult when stuck in the back of the car with an irascible father. First he would begin with mum, nagging at her and bickering, us kids motionless in the back, pretending to be asleep. Psychologists might have had a field day, but back in the early 70s when men were men and my father was a man amongst men, this was simply par for the course. Oh, we dreaded those journeys back from the lunch dues, and I still shiver when I think about those awful, tedious drives home. To the outside world, my dad was charming and one of the funniest guys around, but to the inner circle, his alpha male traits were quite overwhelming. Thirty-odd years later, I still bump into people who confess that they were terrified of my father. Christ, I think, you should have tried living with him. Now, I feel I need to be relatively sensitive about this, but at the same time, I need to tell you as it was. I mean, Mum tried her best to stand up to the old bugger. Invariably, she lost, and on a few occasions, was actually thrown out of the car in the middle of the bush in the middle of the night. Get out and walk, you bitch, he would scream, slamming on the brakes and shoving her out. I kid you not. It was soul-destroying. Peering back through the dust-streaked windows, we could see the rapidly diminishing figure of our beloved mum. False eyelashes and bouffant hair. It was a forlorn sight that remains embedded within me to this day. African nights can be pitch black and it must have been terrifying. But mum being mum, she would pick herself up, dust herself down and walk the ten miles or so in the dark, often through country that was teeming with dangerous nocturnal wildlife, not to mention some very dangerous people. By morning she would be at the breakfast table, behaving as if nothing had happened. I don't know who was to blame, and I honestly don't think it really matters in a case like this. On one occasion, and I think I must have been in my teens, I couldn't bear it any longer, and as soon as we got home, I jumped on the motorbike and sped off into the night in search of her. I found her trudging down the lonely road, shoes in hand, laddered stockings, mascara smudged down her face. She looked like Blanche Dubois or some other tragic Tennessee Williams character. 
It must have been a pretty strange sight to see a woman dressed to the nines, clinging onto the back of a Suzuki 125, panda eyes, stilettos slung over her back, and hair still stiff from a ton of spray stuck up at a jaunty angle. One upside to the bush war was that the conflict put a stop to this. Even my father realised that he would never get away with it by then. But he never let her get off too lightly and she was still in for a hammering once they got home. You're just a drunken bum, she yelled at him one night, tossing her head, hoping he was just too pissed to get out of the sofa. Before she knew it, he was up like a bolt of lightning, chasing after her across the veranda to give her a clip across the ear. As I said, I have to be relatively sensitive about this. But that's the way it was. Mum gave as good as she got. But John was stronger and frankly could be quite the bully. Mum always felt that intrinsically he hated women. He really was a man's man. Some days my mum was let off the hook. And so it was my sister Mandy or me next in the firing line. Mile after mile on those bumpy roads, getting nailed by Woody. Every single fault you could imagine was barked back at us in that car. We were trapped and defenceless. We began to dread those journeys to the club and to lunch dues, knowing what was in store for us later. I used to see other kids at school hugging their fathers or even, God forbid, talking back to them. It seemed like another world. I was jealous and for most of my teenage years I loathed my father. He instilled in me a cold terror that I tended to freeze in my tracks. I cannot emphasise that enough. I would be sitting hoping that he wouldn't engage with me. One night after a wonderful long lunch at Honk and Gina Hyde's at their Pemby Chase farm in Mvukwe's, Mandy and I were trying to sleep in the back of the car. Occasionally pretending to sleep got us some respite. On this occasion, John was arguing with mum about us kids, bitching and moaning and teasing apart every fault he could find. It was miserable. Neither Mandy nor I will ever forget the words that came from John's lips. I can't help it, Lib, but I just can't stand Mandy and Pete. It was quite a thing to say about your kids. But at least now we knew where we stood. Mandy and I silently looked at each other, then went back to pretending to sleep, squeezing our eyes tight to stem the flow of tears. Woody breezed into breakfast the next day as if nothing had happened. What the hell's wrong with you, Lottie? asked, raising a signature eyebrow. You all look like you're about to bawl, you bunch of miseries. Lib, pass the toast. You didn't dare question him, nor would you analyse the previous evening like some perfect American family. Nothing was ever said about those hurtful words until after my dad's death, when Mandy and I began to pick apart the life we lived with this maddeningly hard, yet colourful man. 
A man who expected us to shake his hand every night before going to bed and shake like a bloody man, not some drippy palm handshake. This was a man who made us watch news bulletins on the war in Vietnam and Campuchia because it will do us good before allowing us to run off and play. Of course, he had a point. A man who insisted on being called John and not Dad because Dad was just sissy. A man who outlawed any form of music in the house. Ever. Yet still I loved him and tried desperately to please him, and in his own strange way, I think he tried his best to love us. Hard as it seemed at the time. Now I'm going to end off now before you get too bored, because we've already gone 30 minutes on this recording. But you can catch the second part of The Lunch Do next week. Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me. And remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry, and Pocket Casts. Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com. If you want to get involved and you have a good story to tell about those years in Rhodesia, and if you're brave enough to be interviewed for Mud Between Your Toes, feel free to write to me. Goodbye.